this time we got the right verses up there that we're actually going to cover, and we may get into Second Timothy as well. You might ask, why are we in Timothy when we're studying Paul's address to the Ephesian elders? And if you're new, I'll tell you why. Because Timothy also was in Ephesus later. So when we see what Paul told the elders in Ephesus, and then subsequently Paul's in prison in uh, Rome, writes to Timothy, who's now in Ephesus, and we see some of the things happening that Paul predicted in Acts 20 when he made his address to those elders. And sure enough, uh, the people will come in and be wolves and teach strange doctrines and target the church with those strange doctrines. So we're going to take a little excursus into 1 and 2 Timothy before we get back to uh, Acts 20. And the bigger reason I'm doing all this, besides teaching through Acts, is doing research for writing about the biblical definition of the church and asking the question, why is church history based on something other than the biblical definition of the church? And what would it mean to have a church that's not an institution as has developed in church history. That's the bigger narrative that I'm working on. So we'll go to these verses here, which have a lot of concepts. And I'll read that and pray and we'll begin. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions, disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, the amount of important material here is uh, rather staggering. It would cover a lot of our material that we're doing with our uh, Critical Issues podcast and YouTube videos. We talk about these things constantly. Let's, be, let's have prayer as we begin. Lord, we ask you for wisdom and understanding so that we can not only understand what you've told us, but apply it accurately to our own lives and to the things that we're facing in our day and understand what it is to be your people who are conformed to godliness by your grace. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So some of this we've touched on because I got ahead of myself, I think, last time. But let's break this down slowly and carefully. Different doctrine, we mentioned this, heterodidoskaleo. Heterodox is a word that's often used in English. Heterodoxy would be that which is different than what's revealed and true as given by Christ and his apostles in Scripture. 
So heterodidoscaleo means to give divergent or divisive instruction. It's a verb in this case. So that's why the word advocates is added there um, in the Greek to clarify that this different doctrine is a, given as a verb. So it isn't just the noun different doctrine, but teaching different doctrine, advocating. Now, different has to be, in my opinion, and I think we can prove this biblically, that which is diverging from what's revealed by God's own authoritative and errant spokespersons. And in, under the new covenant, it's Christ and his apostles, and they certainly um, bring forward things from the old covenant that are binding. And I'll talk about that next week in the sermon. I ran across the material that Eric's been sharing with us about how the Old Testament's used in the new. And so I'll bring that to you next week. I, uh, Camp and Rosner have a really good approach to that. Yes. Okay, Bob. Hold on, so, you're not on. Hello? And now you are. Yep. Okay, so different doctrine, sound words, conforming to godliness. What do we got? Bringing into question certain verses, disputes about words, all of these things that are in this verse. At what point, like, I'll just use preterism for an example. Okay. Okay. At what point, because this sounds pretty damning, if you will, that the Lord does not like this. Right. Okay. So at what point does God say, okay, this is has now become a salvific issue, okay? If you're going so far off the beaten path of what my writers have said or what I say, you, you follow what my question yes. is? How do I can, let me respond to that. Some people would give eschatology a buy on all this, but Eric and I are not going to allow that. Um, are we able to judge whether somebody that otherwise has a sound doctrine of Christ, sound doctrine of Scripture and salvation, but cannot articulate a biblical doctrine of the church and the church's mission and message? That's very common in American evangelicalism. My answer is God himself will deal with that. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. There may be a loss of reward. Okay, because God judges the motives and intent of the heart. Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who knows the thoughts and intent of the heart. So I preached on that, if you want to go back to those sermons, that judging God's servants, there's loss of reward, but not salvation. Given the fact that um, eschatology that I think is more seriously wrong than most people realize, it just needs to be dealt with. And Eric's doing that. Let me give you an example. A, a friend of mine, and Eric met Bruce when he was in Canada, is a professor in Japan at a university and also has been, is a theologian and writer who's been published in a lot of the theological journals. 
he asked me to read a book and write an article about it, so I'm working on that. And as I'm reading through the book, and it's a very popular book, it was published by YWAM, but the book just is frustrating me to death. They throw out this stuff and never, ever do any exegesis. Absolutely absent. Obviously, we're supposed to disciple nations. And then um, Matthew 28, something or another. To which verse is that, 18? Okay. Well, wait a second. Hold on. Why are you throwing that verse out there and you haven't shown me one second that you've even studied it? What's the Greek? What's the application? How do you resolve the issues? How do you baptize a geopolitical entity? And what does this have to do with Luke-Acts? They don't ever even talk about Luke-Acts. They just throw that out there. Now, we're supposed to go out and solve the problem of poverty and make the world a better place to live in so that people will like what we're doing and want to come to Jesus. And it's just frustrating. I'm reading the book. Yeah. Okay, if you don't even show enough respect for your readers to prove that you did your homework and you studied the text and you looked at the context and you understand Matthew from beginning to end. And what's Matthew's theme? One of them we just heard from Mary, building on the rock. Otherwise you're building on sand. How do I not know that this social gospel isn't just building on sand? Now, there's some good things in there because they're talking about a Christian worldview, the difference between theism, animism, and liberalism, and so on. I affirm that we should understand these things. But you can't just take a text, throw it out there, and then change the entire mission of the church. How many of you know that if you change the mission of the church, you change the content of the church, and you change the definition of the church. So if we're on a mission to make the world purpose-driven, to fill the pews of purpose-driven persons, and are not too concerned about averting God's wrath against sin, but we are concerned about making people have better lives and better social conditions, you've totally redefined the church. And I wrote an article called Redefining Christianity, which shows that's what's going on. Handed it to Rick Warren personally. They came, got back to us with uh, Richard Abanus, said, we're not going to deal with Bob's book. Because they can't, it's, it's accurate. They know it's accurate. And what I consider damning, they consider virtuous. They're not ashamed of doing that. That's what they think needs to be done. The church needs to be redefined. And so here's my fundamental question. Is it okay to have the biblical definitions of the church rest so lightly on Christians? Is it okay that we don't care? Or is it okay that we think Jesus' kingdom is of this world, even though he said it isn't? And does it matter? And I'm of the opinion that eschatology does matter because the church 
is an eschatological church because on the day of Pentecost, Peter announced that this is the last days prophesied by Joel. Okay? So if that's the, the, the fact that in my last days my Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh, and my sons and daughters will prophesy, the old man will dream dreams and see visions. The, the work of God by the Spirit is for all, not just certain special ones. And there, so we can't just say eschatology doesn't matter. It has to be the first chapter. Now, given that, the next problem is the emergent church went a step further and created a panentheistic view of it, that God is infused into everything, and so the world is evolving toward a paradise on earth without future judgment. So the version I'm reading that was published by YWAM, a guy named Daryl Miller, I think, we're going to make solve the world's problems and people want to be Christian, but it may never happen, we're thinking. The emergence says, no, God is in everything, so therefore we can have this evolving of the world toward paradise because God's in it, and there's no future judgment. And the kingdom of God is look around and see what God is doing and join it. Well, what's the problem? Well, what God is doing in the, is in the mind of the observer and the, the, most of the neighbors I have in St. Louis Park think what God is doing is putting up solar panels and uh, making sure we don't have carbon in an ecosystem that's utterly dependent on carbon. And if that's a blind faith religion. If you question it, you're not our friend. We don't even want to talk to you. You just stay in your own little corner over here. So... These, yeah, worldview is important. But the definition of the church and the doctrine of the church is more important because it's eternal. There will be future judgment. I don't care what Doug Padgett says. You can say, no, God is, there's no, it's all evolving to some better future. Everyone will participate. That's nice. That's rosy, cheerful, warm, warm your heart. But what if you're wrong? He'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Eric. Yeah, um, you know, one way to think about eschatology, I just gave a message. Um, it's recorded now. It won't be up on the YouTube yet. But I thought of a way of defining the importance of eschatology is the relationship between Romans 8 and Romans 9. Now, what do I mean by that? We as premillennialists believe that there are literal promises for Israel that will be fulfilled in the future. The kingdom is coming to Israel Everyone who belongs to the church now is going to be a partaker of the kingdom to Israel. If you don't believe now, if you're not a believer in Christ, that doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, you're not going to be a partaker of this glorious kingdom. But in Romans chapter 8, Paul promises every one of us that nothing can separate us from the love of Amen. Christ. And that's a promise. There's not, remember, no height, nor depth, nor principalities, powers. Nothing can separate us. Well, in chapter 9, he answers the question, well, what about Israel? If God isn't faithful to his promises to Israel, why is he going to be faithful to his promises to us? Right. That's the issue with eschatology. Does God literally bring about the promises? In Micah 5, 2, it said Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Where was he born? Bethlehem. Yeah. And you go on and on. Bob has pointed this out over the years. 
every prophecy is literally fulfilled, but all of a sudden when we come to the second coming text, the amillennialist and the postmillennialist, they'll say, well, we have to spiritualize it. Well, how do you spiritualize the dimensions of the temple in Ezekiel 40 on? Well, if you can do that, the, the temple can mean anything. Um, if I was reading the other day the dimensions of the temple in Ezekiel 41.7. If you t- apply that to the church, the amillennial says, well, that's about the experience of the church here and now. Well, in what way? You can make it mean anything. And so you've lost control. Now the reader defines the meaning rather than the yeah. author. That's why eschatology, I think, matters right. so much. It's about the promises of God. Right. The, the one issue that will fight to the end is who defines whose meaning is God's meaning. The Holy Spirit inspired author or the reader. And one after another after another says the reader. So if you've got a million readers, you've got a million meanings. And we're going to fight that because you lose that battle, you have nothing. So you, there's no future judgment. How can you say that? The biblical authors thought there was. We have to understand that all human communication is based on the idea that the speaker or writer is conveying meaning. And that if any, communi- any actual communication happens, that meaning in some valid way gets to the person you're giving it to. And that's how life works. That's how families work. That's how business works. That's how the gospel works. That's how teaching works. I forgot my emergency asthma inhaler. Texted my wife, get the emergency asthma inhaler, bring it when you come. And she took a picture of it. Is this one? Yep. Okay. Well, that's valid communication. What I meant, she, she knew. What she knew, she did. And we communicated. But what they do is because the Bible deals with very uh, sophisticated ideas that have to do with eternal things, they're not part of the common parlance. The, well, we get a special plead here. Special pleading is an informal logical fallacy. Whatever the rules are, I'm going to take an exception and you do it some other way because I like it worse for me. We see a lot of that in politics, don't we? Uh, well, it doesn't apply to me or I'm going to do it my way. No, we have sober-minded, solid, clear, binding teaching given to us in human languages that we can understand and the meaning is not going to morph because we don't like it. And what I do, and I hope you hold us to this, anyone who wants to make such a grand claim better have done the exegetical work. If you don't even bother to use whatever tools you do have, I can't take you seriously as a preacher. We just did that on our... Millions of books sold to people who don't don't do even rudimentary exegesis. Don't even try to know what the author said. So then why use the Bible? You can use the metaphysical Bible and allegorize that. We're using the Bible because we care what it means. Okay, heterodoxy, or here a verb advocates heterodox different doctrine. 
what it's like. It does not agree with sound words. The word for sound um, is where we get our word hygiene. Uh, and it's a participle here, being healthy. So what uh, a different doctrine doesn't agree with sound words, they're not healthy. Well, in what sense? In the sense that it doesn't make me feel better? No, it, it's modified again. Those of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. Those of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that also brings up an important consideration. Why would Paul in prison in Rome toward the end of his writing career in the Bullinger, the most extreme hyper-dispensationalism, the dispensationalists at least admitted the prison epistles were binding. Well, here is one. So if you don't know, hyper-dispensationalists claim the teachings of Jesus aren't for the church. They're not binding on the church. They were for the Jews, had the Jews accepted the kingdom, but since they rejected it, they were never implemented so we're not bound by the teachings of Jesus. Uh, the, the person just passed away who popularized that recently, which is a guy by the name of Les Feldick. And so somebody took the article I wrote refuting that and republished it with their comments. It's God, all right, fine, maybe somebody will read it. But I hadn't, when I wrote that article, I hadn't seen this. Why would Paul be saying the sound words of those that agree with the Lord Jesus when the teachings of Jesus aren't for the church? They're only for the Jews who didn't accept the kingdom anyhow, so they were never implemented, so we're not bound. And then when people write to me to rebuke me, they say, well, then you have to, and then they cite something Jesus said. Are you going to obey that? If you have one coat, you've got to give one away. They, of course, again, they're not... They're not doing any nuanced study of the material because they don't think it's binding anyhow. So why spend all the effort trying to understand it? There's nothing Jesus taught that's going to harm us. The point is to not be motivated by status in this world. Who has the most? Who's important? Who's rich? Who's poor? And be worldly in our motivations. And these parables explain it in a way that would be shocking to the original audience. Imagine taking whole congregations and robbing them of the richness and the profundity of the Gospels. Amen. It's, that's what they do. It's, it's, it's I, I said in the article, appalling. I don't want to give up the Gospels because somebody said they don't apply to the church. So this right here ought to be the end of all of the, those teachings of hyper-dispensationalism. The teachings of Jesus are for the church. Paul said so. Now, but Jesus didn't actually write something, so how can Paul be saying that? Well, the teachings of Jesus come through his apostles and prophets, the foundation of the church in Ephesians. Uh, Paul, Luke, Mark, John, they're giving us, the, the, whether it's their words or, or the red letters, teachings that came from our Lord Jesus Christ. 
on the road to Emmaus. Jesus was showing the disciples all that was written about him in Tanakh. And at the end, they said, our hearts were burning within us. Wouldn't we love to be on that walk? But then we get a good idea of the content when we read Peter's sermon in Acts. He gives an overview of the proof about who Messiah is out of the Old Testament. Praise God. So, so the doctrine does agree with the word, sound words, healthy words of our Lord Jesus and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. So what this is telling us is that the uh, true teaching that comes from the Lord is what produces, it comes from, and I will say produces, Eusebia. Eusebia is a Greek word, means godliness, godliness, reverence. And so sound teaching produces godliness, and that godliness will be something that changes us by God's grace so that we're different people than we used to be. So that when we do fail, we're smitten. We're wanting to change. Dear God, help me. We're not wanting to change the doctrine so that our favorite sin is no longer a sin. We're asking God to change us, including including an inner work that will change us from the inside out. Because the fear of God tells us that what we are going to be rewarded for, according to 1 Corinthians 4, 5, includes things that have to do with the thoughts and intents of the heart. You can fool everybody out there by portraying yourself as having all kinds of great motives, but God knows the truth, and true godliness doesn't have to convince anybody. True godliness desires to serve with a sincere heart and sincere faith, and desire to help the body of Christ and to promote the gospel. And so those who advocate this different doctrine that doesn't come from the Lord and his apostles, and it isn't conforming to godliness, here is a revealed scripture from Paul about the motive behind it. Conceited and understands nothing. Conceited and understands nothing. And uh, there's different words here. There's an if then with the implied then. The if is if anyone advocates a different doctrine, does not agree with sound words, those are the Lord Jesus, who doctrine conform to conforming to godliness. Now that's the Protestants, the apotheosis, has an implied then. Right, Eric? Okay, then. Here's the result. Conceited and understands nothing. Now, does anybody's translation have something different than conceited? I'm just using any. Jessica. Proud. Proud, okay. Um, uh, the word literally, tufao, in the Greek, is in a perfect tense, and it is, has been blinded literally has been blinded. 
conceited or blind or even mentally ill is what it's saying here in my Greek uh, lexicon. So um, there's a reason why that would apply. And let me also include in that not understanding nothing. And uh, epistomai there is the word for understanding. Um, here's, what the, here's what the problem is. A, a, a faction or a sect or a group that would have something that departs from this orthodoxy, they are the source, okay? In order to get that particular doctrine, you have to go to them. And that's what create, creates a sect. Now, in chapter 2, they'll be talking about Hymenaeus Philetus who said the resurrection has already happened. So, uh, a cult, the way we use the word in English, it can be used in a generic sense too, uh, would be a group that follows the doctrine of some person, and that's the source of it. And you can't get it from anywhere else. You might get modified versions from the followers, like Joseph Smith and so on. But it's a false doctrine. And so that's where the conceit comes from. Its source is something other than Christ and his apostles. Would, would you consider the Catholic Church to be a cult? <clears throat> uh, yes, in the sense that you have to go there to get the whole package. If you ahead of time know what is true and binding, you could go through the Catholic dogma and cate catechism and find the Trinity and find certain statements that we would want to agree with or maybe the Christological creeds. But in practice, everything added to those things that are true create this massive uh, stru religious structure with a hierarchy and the words don't come directly from the scripture through the priesthood of every believer to anyone in that church. They come downstream through the hierarchy. Okay? And so given that, the Trinitarian part is good. The doctrine of Christ as expressed in the Christological creed. Luther said that's good. But by the time you get through everything that's buried in there, you'd have to have an a priori theological education into truth to go there and find those things. If you're just sitting there as a little child going through the whole process, you'll have no clue. What, no, I'm not an ex-Catholic. There are plenty here who are. But what is the bottom line if you just grew up in it? Anybody want to say? Bottom line is yes, it is. Just show up, do what they say? Yes, it is a cult. That's the question. It's a cult. Okay, someone said the bottom line, it is a cult. Amen. Do what you're told and keep your mouth shut. And don't rock the boat. <laughs> Someone says. <laughs> <Yeah. coughs>
Someone said, keep your brains in the parking lot. Go ahead. So when we were recording yesterday, we had talked just a little bit about Gothardism. A lot of us can sit here and, and look at the Catholic Church and say, okay, yeah, that definitely applies there. But sometimes there are the more sneaky things that come into evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. So, and I have not watched it. I have no desire to watch it. But there is a documentary put out by one of the Duggar daughters, or she was involved in it along with some other people, dealing with Bill Gothard and ATI and IBLP and all of this. And a lot of the social media responses have been, well, I never knew this came from Bill Gothard, but I always grew up hearing the umbrella thing where you've got Christ and then the husband. So Christ is the top umbrella. Some of them have the pastor between Christ and the husband, some don't. But the next umbrella down then is the husband, and then the smaller umbrella is the wife under the husband's umbrella, and then the children have an even smaller umbrella under the wife, and you've got this whole structure set up, and evangelicals have just bought this as true and biblical, and nobody has questioned it. And so there's been a lot of things that have come out of Gothardism that people now, as evangelicals, just think is in the Bible until you stop and question it. We and talked about that. Yeah, yesterday. so we mentioned that. That'll It's a month or more out now. But even just taking the, the umbrella situation, every believer is directly under Christ. There's, yeah. no, there's nobody between me and Christ. Uh, Jessica didn't know this. She was a little girl when we were in Daystar. But I, when she brought that up, I guess there's a big scandal going on now. Is that right? Yeah. With this, some family, and there's all kinds of really bad stuff. And that's already happened with Gothard. But when we were in that group that taught the same thing, every person that was going to be on staff was required to go to the Bill Gothard Seminar. And what we were taught is you obey whoever's above you. That's how God's word comes to you. And that's really not that much different in the Catholic system. Yes, Susie. The other piece to that is this on? Okay. Was how fear-based a lot of the Gothard stuff was as well. And if you, you know, disobeyed or did something worldly, you stepped out from under the umbrella so you were no longer under protection. And I mean, families were so afraid. So there was a lot of uh, performance-based, you know, obedience going on. But really, behind the scenes, things were really falling apart in a number of the families. And um, he was always looking for his poster families to have up on the stage. And it, it, it was so apparent to me, coming out of the cult of Catholicism, I just was concerned because he wasn't married, he didn't have kids, he was raking in tons of money at these big conventions. And it was so cult obvious to me. So I thank God we didn't get involved in that, but we had a lot of friends who were. Yes, well, thank you. Uh, this, if you were around in the 70s, this was huge. Filled arenas. And then you brought your the notebook, had nothing in, you had to write down what he said. Uh, it was this top-down spirituality. I was in it, got out of it. Then I met this Don Vineau, who has a ministry called Mid Midwest Christian Ministries. He, in the late 90s, had a child who had been raised under Gothard's group testifying how horrible it was. That was in 1999. 
So this is not a, a surprise. And then there were scandals. Now, the, the, the antidote, dear ones, is the same one that was promoted by Luther at the Reformation. The authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer. Okay? This top-down, trickle-down spirituality is not biblical. Every believer has direct access to the throne of grace. You don't need some holy man or holy woman who has the secret, the hotline to heaven between you and God to tell you what you ought to do or what you ought to believe. You have the scriptures and we want an educated people. I don't use the term lay people because it's a redundancy. Right? What is laos in the Greek? People. People, people. Okay. So it's a redundancy. And it, it assumes there's one kind of Christian, the clergy, and another kind, us adults that just have to listen to them. That's not true. Dear ones, whoever you are, well, this is going to come up in 1 Corinthians when I'm preaching in there the next time and in, in the future. Your status in this world can stay whatever it is because you have a new status as a child of the king. I don't want to give away my sermon, but I'll get you thinking about it. I'll just give you this line. Uh, If you've been converted, you've already received the greatest status upgrade anyone could ever have. You went from a child of hell to a child of the king. And I like the old gospel songs that rejoiced in that. From the door of the orphanage to the house of the king. Dear ones, we're just too sophisticated for our own good. We don't we get to the point where I don't want to be ordinary. I want to be the best Christian that ever lived. I want to be an apostolic fivefold ministry Christian or uh, a really pious one that takes those or whatever version of it it is. Those doctrines, whatever they may be, do not produce godliness. What they produce is scandals. Anyone, anywhere can fall into sin, but you have a way out. You repent and you're right with God. But when you're in that kind of a system with, with a guaranteed outcome, you don't get the outcome you hide it. Go ahead. Well, and that's exactly what's happened with the Duggar family, and a lot of things have been uncovered that they'd swept under the rug. But thinking back on this umbrella system now, as we're talking through this, what's in the back of my mind is Jesus saying, let the little children come unto me and do not hinder them. What that system says is the children go through mom, who goes through dad, who goes through the pastor, who goes through Bill Gothard, and you might eventually get to God. But any of those kids at any time could come to faith, and they don't need anybody in between them. And there's also, so my parents, when I was a kid, I had a friend, her name was Anita, she lived about a block away, and she had unbelieving parents, and all she ever wanted to do was go to church with us. So every Sunday and every Wednesday, my parents picked up Anita and brought her to church with us, and she was at every youth group thing, and anything going on, Anita was there. And now, 40, 45 years later, 
she's still serving the Lord. But how was she to go through her mom and her dad and all of these things? It, it doesn't work that way. God doesn't save through natural childbirth. Right. She could go directly to the Lord. Exactly. Now, uh, dear ones, all the political talk right now, let me make this really simple. Okay? There's the racial problem is the Adamic race. There's a massive racial problem. It's called being descendant of Adam. Every human being on the face of the earth has descended from Adam. The only way out of that curse of sin, and Adam all die, is to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter whether you come from uh, a favored group, a disfavored group, an oppressed group, a poor group, a rich group. It doesn't matter. Anybody, anywhere. We'll see that in 1 Corinthians 7. You come to Christ. Your sins are forgiven. You go from darkness to light. You have just been promoted into the one group that'll be serving him with joy for all eternity. And the other things, I don't I'll get ahead of myself. I have a sermon already written about this. Some people are shocked at what Paul says. They're shocked. How could he say this? Because he didn't view things from a worldly perspective. In Christ is everything. And that's why I love some of those old songs. Child of the King, join heirs with Jesus. So if he's conceited, if you're not having a doctrine conforming to godliness, a heterodoxy, understands nothing, but so there, this is the hypothesis. He is conceited, understands nothing, but has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. We talked about that last week. Literally, the Greek has a word that could be translated word fights. Word fights. Now, this doesn't mean we don't use words to express doctrines, but drawing distinctions where there are none and creating ideas that don't really conform to those of the Lord. And out of these word fights arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction. Stop there. When your doctrine comes from a unique source, whether it's, we were mentioned to Bill Gothard, or whoever, whether it's the Pope, or some group somewhere. And that's where it comes from, and only they're going to tell you what the Scripture means. You're going to get into this. Because anybody anywhere else who's a Christian has a different source, which is Scripture alone. So somebody comes along, and they say, you have to believe this, this, and this. Because the group I'm in believes it, and I know it's true, and you better get on board. And for the last 40 years, I've gotten calls from people who want to say, well, I'm interested in the church. And so then you talk, you either submit to them in everything they believe, or you'll never have fellowship with them. And they're looking for some pastor or teacher who's willing to do that. 
And, I, and then they start sending you literature in the old days and links in the new days. I said, no, right, let's just open the scripture and I'll talk to you about any doctrine you're interested in and see who has the better reading. No, you have to take the whole package. Some of those people never, ever have a church they fellowship with because they want to be the pope over their own domain. And so far, they haven't found anybody wanting to join. But you, 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 why do you have envy, strife, abusive language? Because the sectarianism is always like that. Who has the bad motives? Who is the better Christian? Who has more power? Who did more miracles? Who has better insight? Whereas the body of Christ, with Christ as the head, if, as we go through Corinthians, you're going to see this by God's grace. Every member is attached to the head. Every member is important. Every member has the Holy Spirit and the truth. Assuming you're converted. Every member has significance and status and is needed. And those who would promote themselves as the great answer, the great powerful man of God, don't understand. Paul did the opposite. We covered that in our podcast about his thorn in the flesh. Even when he did have a, an amazing experience, he was given a thorn of flesh to keep him from exalting himself. Only what came from Christ was of value. Dear ones, what came from Christ is for you. It'll benefit you. It'll give you significance in him, whether you have it in the eyes of the world. Of course, you won't. And we want to pray for and care about one another, whoever we are. Because that's what the body of Christ looks like. We don't go into some uh, cathedral with robed priests and hope that maybe they'll hear us, put in a good word for us with the big guy. <laughs> that is not biblical Christianity. But you do that. Constant friction. Men of depraved mind, deprived of the truth. I'll tell you this. Uh, by the way, the word for deprived, apostrapheo. Excuse me. Apostrapheo would be to, having been pulled away from or not standing firm in. It's gone. Um, in this case, they have corrupted thinking We're from this word pathero, which means uh, disillusion and corruption, and then there's a prefix. And in this case, what does it boil down to? Money. Godliness, Eusebia, is a means of gain. Well, has anybody ever tried to do that one? Oh, yeah. And some people may get their calling card. The bigger the mansion, the more private jets, the bigger the salary, the bigger the mailing list, bigger anything, is proof of validity. But the reality is the proof of validity is agreeing with the sound doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and those who do or want to are not threatened when somebody questions them. They're not angry when somebody says, did you get that scripture right? Did you do your study? Does this really apply? And challenges it. That's what we want to welcome. That's the authority of scripture and priesthood of every believer. And it will motivate teachers and preachers to do their homework. And reading some of the popular books, I'm shocked that they don't even try. They assume nobody would challenge them. So I take it as a job to do so. If Matthew 28 says the Great Commission is to Christianize the world by solving problems and uh, making life better for people to live in different societies, that's the book I'm reading now is claiming that. I got to see that from Matthew 28 in context. And I also want to see how the disciples understood it. And I don't think Matthew has a different gospel than Luke. And I'd like to know how that applies to what Luke taught and what Jesus said there and how it was actually practiced in the book of Acts. And you, you apply all those tests and the whole thing fails, utterly fails. And why do they not allow themselves to be held into account of how they interpret the scripture? Do you think the past, does it not matter? Does it not matter what God said? Do you think there's no consequence to say, I don't, I don't, that's how I see it. Let's just go do that. Put all your money. If we have millions and millions and millions of dollars to, to have this infrastructure to do all these things, that's the Great Commission. But then there's so many questions. What, what happens? Did you know that the great Ivy League schools are Christian colleges? Now they will hardly allow a Christian in. So how did that happen? Well, because the truth is not an institution. It's a relationship. Brother Brian. I believe that it's a ploy of the evil one. It's a, cir- it's a vicious circle that you can't get off of unless the Lord allows you to. And that is that the false teaching breeds uh, the people who are hearing it. You, have, uh, you don't understand what the gospel says. So it's basically biblical illiteracy. And when you have that, the, the, the preacher who's not doing the exegesis on his messages, everything just gets convoluted. And it's the deceiver who likes it like that. And without the Lord acting or allowing you to see the truth, it'll just keep going and proliferating. Yeah. And The gospel becomes so muted and buried in legal documents that filed with articles of incorporation, it's never heard again. I have a statement I put in my notes to make here. Parochial church dogma, denominational, is supposed to solve this problem, but never has. Sound doctrine is soon ignored. 
it becomes Christian doctrine and name only as future generations come up with ways to ignore, redefine, or simply leave in a file cabinet as they teach what they want. Eric, that's how we met. At a seminary where that happened, and we confronted the provost. How did this happen? How did in 10 years we go from studying essential truths that have been taught by Christians throughout the history of the church? What does the Lord's Supper mean? What is baptism about? What are the doctrines of the church? What are the ordinances? What's a gone? Replaced by yeah, emerging, removing binary reductionism. No more male and female, good and evil. It's all okay. So that was they were ahead of the culture in some ways. Uh, dear ones, if you go and hold the feet to the fire, say, wait, 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 wait. They can pull the docu- documents out of the file cabinet, proving they're Baptist and they're Orthodox. But a teacher who would teach what's in there would never be hired. A pastor who preaches it would never be hired. Yes, Apollo. Can you repeat your statement that you had written down? You, okay. Very slowly, I'll do it slowly. No, just read it at a normal pace so we can hear it one more time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Parochial church dogma, in parentheses, denominational, is supposed to solve this problem, but never has. It is soon ignored. It becomes Christian doctrine and name only. As future generations come up with ways to ignore, redefine, or simply leave in a file cabinet as they teach what they want. Period. The file cab, I call it file cabinet orthodoxy. It's in there. Somebody challenges us here. Look, see, we're orthodox back in the file cabinet. Now I'm going to preach on removing binary reductionism. You know the ultimate re- binary reduction they want to get rid of? Heaven and hell. Yes. Go ahead. Paula. Yeah. Um, uh, as far as these false teachers... Um, and, and the umbrella hierarchy of submission in the evangelical church, the end result is destroyed lives. And uh, the ones up on top have uh, a pride issue, and, and the, the, well, the whole thing, they're destroyed by their pride, and, and, and the others are destroyed. I just have an example um, a, f- a friend of mine from Illinois called um, on Friday night, and and um, her husband had been. Uh, she was in an evangelical church, and her husband was abusive to her. And then she found out he was using pornography, and on top of that, um, um, uh, had a mistress, and and, and he, he was. He was funneling out money to pay for that whole thing, and yet he's high in the church, and so she went to the church for help, and the church believed him 
and not her. And so then they said, well, can you come for another uh, meeting with me? It turned out to be um, uh, not only her and the pastor, they had several people there, and, and they were all aligned against, against her. And, and he's, a, he's a typical abuser. Yeah. And, and so um, she's, she's a destroyed person, so she had to leave the church. It's very, very much like what Jessica me. just said. Thanks for sharing that. Jessica shared what happened through this other thing. Uh, we have to care about one another and see everyone that's part of the family of God is God's precious child. And we've got to guard everyone from any kind of harm the best we can. Godliness is not there to enhance the bank account of leaders. Not that people can't be taken care of. Uh, Paul talks about that elsewhere, but not to create status in this world, but to take care of the needs of everyone. So let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for giving us the chance to look into these things and to encourage one another. We thank you for everything you've done for us and pray for Pastor Eric as he preaches the word to us that his words would be clear and sound and that we would hear and listen and pay attention to what you've said. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.